Hello and welcome to Crime Theories of the Record, the podcast series where I talk about my interpretation of crime theories. This is your host, Karen. Hello everyone. Building on our last episode, I will introduce George Simmel and William Bonger. As I already discussed Karl Marx, the philosopher. But before I jump into this, I would like to remind everyone that I am not an expert in every aspect of my field, but I have researched the topic, or topics in this case. To recap, in the 1970s, a new school of criminological thought, known variously as new, critical, radical, or Marxist, came on the scene. Conflict criminology focuses on why things change identifying the disruptive forces in industrialized societies and describing how society is divided by power, wealth, prestige, and the world's perceptions. One of the essential contributions of Marxist criminology has been how it has expanded the study of crimes to include crimes of the powerful. Many early attempts to develop Marxist criminology focus on crimes committed by lower classes. Hence, social conflict theories suggest that crime in any society is caused by class conflict and that those in power create laws to protect their rights and interests. Like Marx, George Simmel was a German intellectual deeply interested in social theory. But on the other hand, Simmel was a contemporary of Durkheim, doing his theoretical work a few decades later than Marx and concerning himself with the search for a precise intellectual understanding of abstract laws governing human interaction rather than with changing the world. Off the record, Durkheim was concerned with social solidarity as Marx was concerned with freedom. And the question Marx tends to ask is, how can humans be free? From being constrained to our bodies and a very slow adapting society, we still need to cater to our needs to survive. As we labor, we change the world around us. But by doing so, we're no longer an egalitarian society and have become constrained by institutions. Hence, we're no longer naturally constrained, but socially constrained, which has led us to all the inequalities we face today. Now, Simmel was an exponent of sociological formalism. He was concerned not so much with the changing content of social life as with its recurring forms of patterns. Speaking of Simmel, Wolf 1964 remarked that his approach represented a preponderance of the logical over the normative. Simmel's interest was not in particular conflicts, but rather in conflict, and was less concerned with normative questions, such as justice of a specific outcome, than with the abstract logic of conflict itself. Although Simmel was deeply interested in conflict as a form common in social life, he was not as preoccupied with it as Marx, seeing it as a normal part of life and as one form of interaction among others some of which were operating in different and even opposite directions in an integrated social system. The conflict was regarded not as a problem necessarily calling for solutions or even leading to change, but as a distinctive aspect of social order that often contributed to that order. Of equal importance is that whereas Marx focused on the cause of conflict and sought to find means for their elimination, Simmel concentrated on the consequences of conflict, with little interest in its source and great interest in the complex formal patterns through which it developed. Early during the 20th century, the conflict perspective of Marx and Engels was explicitly applied to criminological theory by the Dutch criminologist Willem Bonger. As mentioned earlier, the turbulence of the 1960s brought renewed interest in Marxist theory and the work of Bonger, 1916 and 1969, in the introduction to an abridged edition of Bonger's major work published near the end of the 1960s. The American criminologist and conflict theorist Austin T. Turk spoke of him appreciably as a man who combined a passion for 
alleviating human misery with an equal passion for scientific research. Like Marx and Engels, and unlike Freud and Durkheim, Bonger believed humans were innately social. If so, crime could have to be traced to an unfavorable environment that distorted human nature. Moreover, Bonger held that just such a hostile environment had been generated by the rise of capitalism. Under capitalism, according to Bonger, a sharp division between the rulers and the ruled had arisen that originated not in the innate differences between them, but rather in the economic system itself. In such an unfavorable environment in which people were pitted against each other in the financial struggle, in which the individual was encouraged to seek pleasure by any means possible without regard for others, and in which the search required money, human nature was distorted into an intense egoism that made people more capable of committing crimes against one another. Thus, like the control theories as far back as Durkheim Bonger traced crime partly to individual egoism. Unlike them, however, Bonger took the Marxist position that the decline of social integration and the rise of highly disruptive individualism could be traced to capitalism. Such egoism could never be reduced by social controls that bound the individual more closely to society. For society, under capitalism, was itself the very source of selfishness. Bonger traced much crime to the poverty generated by capitalism, both directly because crime among the subordinate class sometimes was necessary for survival, and indirectly because of the sense of injustice in a world where many had next to nothing. In contrast, if you had nearly everything held to demoralize the individual and to stifle social instincts. At the same time, however, he recognized that the more powerful bourgeoisie also committed crimes. He traced this to the opportunities that came with power and the decline of morality that came with capitalism. Crime was seen as a product of an economic system that fostered a greedy, egoistic, look-out-for-number-one mentality, while at the same time making the rich richer and the poor, well, we know. Long before the labeling theorists, Bonger stressed that although it certainly was true that crime fell into the category of immoral actions, definitions of morality varied. Indeed, he went to further insist that the source of the prevailing definitions and their variations could be found in the interest of the powerful. Of the record, it is important to understand that this materialistic reality was the focus when comparing it to other institutions. Marx believed that to understand other institutions, it's important to understand the production and control of resources. Hence, the economy was the foundation and every other superstructure was built upon it. In Bonger's view, behaviors were defined as crimes when they significantly threaten the interests of the powerful and hardly any act is punished if it does not injure the interests of the dominant class. Thus, Bonger took note of the statistics showing a lower crime rate among the bourgeoisie and traced this to the fact that the legal system tends to legalize the egoistic actions of the bourgeoisie and to penalize those of the proletariat. Given Bonger's theory of the causes of crime, his conclusion that the abolition of capitalism and the redistribution of wealth and power would restore a favorable environment and eliminate crime follow almost entirely as a matter of political logic. And before we dive deeper into Sutherland's and Selin's conflict theories next week, it is essential to be mindful of the political climate of the time. The 1960s represented a significant turning point for criminology. It was within the context of those times that both control theory and labeling theory developed from theoretical seeds planted earlier. The same was true for conflict theory. Although control theory reacted by stressing the tenuous nature of complex society under conditions of rapid social change, 
and insisted that crime and delinquency tended to spread with any significant weakening of forces containing the individual. Conflict theory highlighted the newly revealed patterns of social division and questioned the legitimacy of the motives, strategies, and tactics of those in power. Although labeling theory exposed how crime was a social construction of moral entrepreneurs and others in a position to influence the definitions developed by the political state and sometimes pointed to class bias in the labeling process, Conflict theory was much more explicit about the connection between the criminal justice system and the underlying economic order, sometimes condemning the state itself. Seeking to explain the rise of criminological conflict theory, which he termed critical theory during the 1960s, Sykes 1974 pointed to three factors of special importance. First, there was the impact of the war in Vietnam on American society. Second, there was the growth of the counterculture. Third, there was the rising political protest over discrimination, particularly racial discrimination, and the use of the police power of the state to suppress political dissent, associated issues that had been threatening to break into the open since World War II. As the war in Vietnam escalated, doubts deepened about the wisdom of government policy and the fundamental motives and credibility of those in power. Reasons given for the escalating involvement seemed to many to be rather far-fetched and doubts were increased by discoveries of disinformation, a bureaucratic term for governmental lies, or as we call them now, fake news. Protest march spread, armed troops fire on and kill peaceful protesters on college campuses, the conscientious objectors about whom Bolt had written so coolly were everywhere, voluntarily choosing to become quote-unquote criminals by leaving for Canada or burning their draft cards in heated public protests. Counterculture behavior dramatized a fundamental conflict in values. Millions were engaging in harmless activities, but the legal system regarded them as criminal offenses, so-called victimless crimes such as fornication, vagrancy, and illegal drug use. The latter had become a way of getting high and a symbolic political protest, and we all can see this in the American romantic comedy Forrest Gump. Off the record, you can also see all of this currently happening in America. The feminist movement continues to speak more and more of the political, economic, and sexual oppression of women, especially with the overturn of Roe v. Wade. The LGBTQ community has been forced to become more politicized as their few rights are under attack, organizing to resist labeling and discrimination. Underlying social conflict has become more and more into the open as the civil rights movement continues, as it is clear that African Americans are not going to gain social equality without civil disobedience, and that the only way of dealing with the unjust laws that criminalizes them and kills them is to learn from history in which the protesters become quote-unquote criminals and end up in the criminal justice system as the prize for the reliefs and advocating for fundamental human rights. Thank you for listening and choosing this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify or whatever platform you're listening from. And don't forget to tune in for the next episode. Off the record, if you need help visualizing these theories, go check us up on Instagram at ct.offtherecord.